as we're back in 1 Corinthians, uh, the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be talking about marriage and the importance of singleness. So remember that the letter of 1 Corinthians was to a church in Corinth, the church in Corinth. There wasn't multiple uh, denominations or anything. It was the church in Corinth, and they were a very messed up, jacked up church. Uh, and uh, Paul writes them a harsh but loving letter that rebukes them. But if we were being honest as a modern Christian, we would also say that lots of what Paul is rebuking in the letter of 1 Corinthians is a lot of things that we tolerate as a modern church today. So this is a very relevant letter for us. I'll give you a little bit of a recap in a second because we've been out of it for the whole summer. But it deals with many issues in the church that we are still facing today and some that I would argue that we are facing to a greater intensity. So if you, if you have a great memory, unlike me, you will remember that we broke the book of 1 Corinthians into five categories and we're going to work through those five categories. The first was uh, divisions in the church. Now, we looked at this in chapters 1 to 4. And then the second category is confusion about sex, marriage, singleness, and divorce. And we're going to be looking at this, we are looking at this, in chapters 5 to 7. Uh, the third category is differences about Christians' freedoms and their liberties and how some things might, you might be restrained from conscience to do, but others are not. And how do we work together as a church to uh, meet all those needs? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to stay away from? Uh, we're going to look at all of that in chapters 8 to 10. And I know this is the one that you're all waiting for, really, is the chaotic church services and the abuse of spiritual gifts that were happening in the church of Corinth. And we're going to look at the proper use of the gifts within the church and how they are used today. And we're going to be looking at that in chapters 11 to 14. And then lastly, we saw there's some confusion about the resurrection uh, of Christ, and he sets us straight on that. And then 16 will be kind of a, a closing uh, chapter for us. But that's kind of your one-minute refresher on where we've been and where we are going in this book. And let me just say that the section on sex, romance, and marriage, and singleness has been one of the most relevant sections for many of us in this church. I have received so much positive feedback on this subject uh, from you and from others. The last sermon that we preached in this series was in July 2nd. We finished off chapter 6. And we looked and we dived into the world of sexual immorality. And we looked at LGBTQ issues. And I wanted to share this because it just will show you how relevant this is for you. That July 2nd sermon is our most shared and watched sermon that we've ever had on our website. And I have had people who have stopped me in town who have don't even go to our church, other Christians, who have thanked me for that message because somebody has shared it with them. And that just shows you how much we need to talk about the subject of sex, sexuality, gender from the church. Because if we're not discipling ourselves with the word of God and the truth of God, then we are going to be conditioned and discipled by the world. If we're not filling our mind with scripture and that the church is staying silent on these things because they're unpopular and they're hard, I call them space maker sermons, right? <laughs> People are like, oh, I'm not going here. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but they're important. We must not shy away from them no matter how awkward they are to talk about. 
But with that today, we're going to be talking about singleness. And we're going to be looking at that in 1 Corinthians 7, in chapter 7. Paul weaves back and forth throughout this whole chapter. He goes from singleness to marriage and divorce, which is next week. And, you know, we preach through every book, so we can't skip these hard ones. But if I could skip anything in this book, I would skip the one on divorce. But we're not going to. Um, So today we're going to be looking at singleness and a little bit of marriage. And we're going to be doing that by looking at the first eight verses and the last few verses. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the middle verses of chapter 7, which is all about marriage and divorce. And I've titled that sermon, Tough Marriages and Divorce. We've all had some tough roads in our marriages if we are married. But with that, let's read our verses today. I hope you have your Bible in front of you. If not, There's a hardback blue one in front of you or near you. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, is is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command. It's really important to pay attention to that. I say this. I wish you were all as myself which is single, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But I'm going to add nine as well. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Amen? It is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, now, by just looking at these first eight verses, you can tell why that I had an internal struggle all week whether or not to send out an email and title this a PG-13 message. And, and I've struggled with that. And I ended up not because I think uh, I'm not going to be explicit. Scripture's not explicit. We're going to use the language of Scripture this morning, and we're not going to go beyond that. Uh, but we're just going to explain what Christ is saying. And, and and anyone who is not the age to go downstairs is going to be fine. Like it, and by what your kids are learning in, pre, in, in elementary school and public school, yeah. they need this message more than anyone, yeah. right? Because the world is very confused on these subjects. So remember, as we work through the letter of 1 Corinthians, you kind of have to keep in mind that Paul is not writing a composed work of theology. It's more Paul bringing some rebuke to things he has heard, and he's answering some questions that the Corinthians sent to him in a previous letter. If you read 1 Corinthians and you compare it, read it next to the book of Romans, for example, you're going to see two vastly different letters from the same author. One is a very high, rich, composed view of theology, which is Romans. It's the handbook for every Christian, in a sense. The other is, how do you live out that theology? And that's how you see it in 1 Corinthians. You're doing this wrong, shape up or ship out. No, he doesn't say that. But he just calls us to shape up in light of the gospel. And the beautiful thing about that is that when we shape up in light of the gospel is that we are not doing it out of our own strength, but out of the strength of Christ. But you notice this on how he opened the chapter 7. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. 
He's answering questions. And then you're going to see those quotes there. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting back from the letter that the Corinthians wrote to him first. He did this also in chapter 6, and we'll see him do this later in the book as well. And you have to remember the context of Corinth. It was a highly sexualized culture, it sounds familiar, and many Christians were falling prey to sexual immorality, which led many scholars to believe that there was probably a group within Corinth, within the church, running around saying things like, absolute celibacy is the supreme spiritual state. We must abstain from sex. Sex is bad, no matter if it's a marriage or not. True holy people are no sex people. That's probably what they were running around, something along those lines lines. And it's not hard for us to imagine this is what's happening because this is still how many Christians deal with sin today. Instead of going into our culture and being the lights that Christ called us to be and shining the light into darkness and preaching the gospel to the culture, we erect massive walls and rules that are not found in scripture and we isolate ourselves in the church. And you know what happens to a church that does that? They die. They die. But, but this is what Paul's saying. He's not, don't, don't, don't run around and put up all these rigid rules that are not true. Go and show the world what true sexuality is inside the covenant of marriage. So Paul in this chapter is going to talk about how marriage and singleness are both, I want you to hear that, are both gifts from God. And God has a plan for both situations. So hear this, church. Christianity has an incredibly high view of both singleness and marriage. But here's the dilemma that we face in our, in our modern church, is that we live in a church culture that is obsessed with marriage. It's the goal, it's, it, it, we promote it like it's the goal of everyone. We, pro, we promote the idea that marriage is somehow the varsity team in the church, and singleness is the junior varsity team. Oh yeah, sure, you're okay. You go on the junior varsity team. But what this does is makes people feel marginalized. And I know, I can stand here confidently and say, I know many of you who are single in our church have felt marginalized before in our church. For instance, when I was doing some research on how church engages with the single population of their, uh, of their um, uh, congregations, I came across a church in the States who has an adult social club called Pairs and Spares. Like, how horrible is that? Somehow, we got pairs, and those are just our spare tires over there. Hopefully, they'll, they'll get loaded up one day with someone. It's just terrible how the church treats the single population. And then on the other hand, though, this is what's interesting, is we live in a culture that is obsessed with singleness, but not biblical singleness, which is absolute celibacy, but they're obsessed with where you can have sex with whenever it's convenient with you, uh, with whoever you would like, no strings attached, you don't even need to know their first name. Now, we detailed all that in our July 2nd sermon, so I won't rehash the negative side effects of that type of living, but you can go ahead and watch that. But I found a recent poll that said since 1960, the percentage of married adults in North America has dropped from 72% of married adults to about 50% today. That's a pretty big drop. And every year, which is interesting, the average age of first-time marriages, so not after divorce or not after a loss of a spouse, but first-time marriages, the average age goes up. Right now, on average, the average man in North America gets married at the age of 30. And the average female 
gets married at the age of 28. And today, Paul wants to show how God has a plan for both marriage and singleness. And he does so by championing at first the goodness of sex within the covenant of marriage. Look at verse 2. It says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should, be his, uh, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So what's Paul saying? He's saying the desire for sex is so strong in an individual that it governs us lots of times as humans. And in marriage, you should be fulfilling that desire because it's so powerful, you don't want to be led into sin because of it. He's saying sex within marriage is good. He's combating against what those people were probably saying, like no sex is the way to go. That's what true holy people do. He's like, no, no, no. In marriage, it's appropriate. It's a God-given desire. And through it, one of the ways that God, God uses it is to populate the earth. In other ways, it shows us beautiful illustrations of God's relationship with man. It shows us that there is intimate relationships that take place within covenants that are only done within a covenant, like the covenant that God made with man. And marriage is a symbol of that. This is what sets marriage apart from just being friends. It should, anyways. It doesn't a lot in our culture, but it should. And then he says in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now this verse, verse 4, would have been countercultural to those in uh, Corinth. To the average Corinthian man, they would have saw, seen their women as slaves in a sense, that they were there to fulfill their desires only. And Paul says, you don't just have authority over your wife's body, but now your wife also has authority over your body. And this concept would have blown the minds of the Corinthians. Corinthian men held all the cards in marriage. They could do as they pleased. They could come and go. They could divorce for no reason. We'll talk about that next week. But Paul is correcting that behavior with the gospel. And he's overturning the whole system of thought. This is what the gospel does. It changes the way we're supposed to think. And in marriage, he's saying both offer their bodies as service to one another. But sadly, over the years, these verses have been misabused or misunderstood and abused and have been a source of many abuse situations within the church and mainly by men. The argument would go along the lines of, I have the desire. It does not matter if you have the desire because I own your body. And you are sinning if you deny that to me, according to Paul. But that is not what this verse is saying. That is not what Paul is meaning in marriage. You should know that there's a little bit more going on into a sexual relationship than just saying, I got the desire, we're going for it. What Paul is saying is that in marriage... You should look at your wife, you should look at your husband, and you should view them and every day see what's the best way that I can serve her today? What's the best way that I can serve him today? Marriage is all about laying down your life and serving another. And hopefully, the other person in that party is laying down their life and serving you. Marriage is all about communication. There should be boundaries set up communicated clear lines around what happens in the sexual relationship in every marriage long before you head to the bedroom. Then verse 5, it says, 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps on agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because your lack of self-control. So what's Paul doing? In these first few verses, Paul is debunking the idea that celibacy is some kind of spiritual superior state. He is commanding that married, the married in these passage to do what married people do. And while you're at it, don't forget to pray every once in a while. Okay, that's what he's saying. And then Paul takes a turn in verse 6. Not as a concession, now as a concession, sorry, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself, which is single, but each his own gift from God, one of, one of one kind and one of another. Now, the word gift there that Paul uses is the Greek word charisma. There's a couple different Greek words for gift, but this one he's using charisma. And it's one of the words that the Bible uses for spiritual gifts. And he's saying, I wish you all had this gift of singleness. And we'll get to why in a moment. But for now, he says in verse 8, he says, to the unmarried and the widows. Right? So what he means by that is the unmarried and the widows, he's talking to anyone who is uh, single for either the, the, for they've never found the one yet or they're single again, meaning that their spouse has passed, passed away or God forbid they walked out on them or maybe even because they have a same-sex attraction. And no matter what they do, they can't seem to find attraction to the other sex, but they know they want to honor God with their bodies so they remain single. He's saying whatever reason why you are single, it is good for you to remain single as I am. That's what he's saying. So uh, we'll explain this a little bit more in a second, but let me just give you a handful of completely countercultural statements derived from these passages on sex, singleness, uh, and that we see in chapter 7. The first is singleness is not, um, singleness is not an inferior state to marriage. Single people often get the role under the deal. Married people are always trying to fix them and like there's something wrong with them. I had a professor when I was in the first round of Bible college when I was doing my bachelor's and he was, a, he was a pastor before he became a professor and he was 25 when he became a lead pastor and he wasn't married till he was 36. Okay, so he pastored for about 10 to 11 years at this church without a wife. And every wedding that he would do, all the little old ladies would come up to him and say, don't worry, pastor, you're next. And he said, I started getting annoyed with that. So every funeral I conducted, I went up to those same old ladies and said, don't worry, you're next, okay? <laughs> the scary thing is, is he never told us if that was a true story or not. Uh, <laughs> but maybe that's why he was only there for 10 or 11 years. But, uh <laughs> but the principle behind that story, because he was teaching us things not to do, he was talking, he's saying the, uh, the, the church often talks like the reason why single people are single is because they are not yet mature enough for marriage or maybe they're not content enough. And I can tell you that's not true because some of the most jacked up, messed up, immature, dysfunctional people that I know and work with are married. Tim Keller says, under all these statements is the premise that a single life is a second-class life, a state of deprivation for people not yet fully formed for marriage. It's not true. That's a lie from the enemy. These statements are not true. And because marriage is not some superior state, in fact, marriage is just a temporary gift that God gives to some for the fulfillment of certain purposes. 
Look at what Paul says in verse 29. We have to jump now to the near the end. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For now on, let those who have wives live as though they have none. What is he talking about? Some people read that and they go, what is, what is Paul saying? Is he telling me as a man that I don't have to live like I have a wife? That's not what he's saying. So let's, let's explain what he's saying. He gives us a little bit of context in verse 31. He says, And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. And what else is passing away with that world is marriage, which is just a temporary gift. So both married people and single people should realize that their situations are not ultimate. Both marriage and singleness are just temporary gifts for the fulfillment of God's purposes on this earth. Throughout the gospel, Jesus would give fascinating statements on marriage. Once in Mark, in the gospel of Mark, in chapter four, 7, or four, no, 12, sorry, uh, the, they, the rulers come up to him and they try to corner him with all these questions. They say, what about this lady? She had a husband who had seven, you know, brothers or whatever, and they all die. She works through them all like a black widow, okay? And... Um, Nobody got that joke. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and then they say to him, what happens in the resurrection? Whose husband, will, will, whose wife will she be? And he says, your whole premise is wrong. There's no marriage in heaven. You're like the angels who don't give themselves in marriage. Because marriage is just a temporary illustration of the love of God. A temporary means by which God has populated the earth. It was a good gift. But soon it will give away to the relationship which it was pointing to, which is our relationship with Christ. A few chapters before that encounter, Jesus had another interesting encounter. He was teaching, and some people came and said, Hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. What does Jesus do? He looks around and he goes, This is my mother. These are my brother. Anyone who does the will of my father is my mother, my brother, my sister. What is Jesus saying? This is really important. Jesus is saying that, hey, blood relationships are great. But you know what transcends a blood relationship is a relationship in the Lord. Meaning your relationship with the people in this church far exceed your biological relationships. Because you are going to be doing eternity together. And you can say that confidently about every believer in this room. But can you say that confidently about your biological relationships? I'm not saying you don't take care of your family. That's your mission. That's what God has given. You should be giving the gospel to your family. But you should also be looking at your church more than just a group of people that you share the same air with every Sunday. But these are your family. I love how John Piper said it. He says, God promises you blessings in the age to come that are better than the blessings of marriage and children. Marriage is temporary, but what it stands for lasts forever. Marriage is a temporary institution that finally gives way to the relationship to which it was pointing to all along, Christ and the church, at which point marriage fades away and it becomes unnecessary. I love this part. The way you no longer need a picture of someone when you finally see them face to face. So getting back to that strange passage in verse 29 where Paul says, hey, yeah, men live as like you have no wives, and 31 where he says the present time is passing away. What he is saying is not everyone should now get divorced, but rather that we look at all things in our lives from the proper context, from the proper perspective. Marriage, singleness, buying a property, moving to new places, whatever it might be, all those things are good, but they are not eternal. And we should view them as such. We should view them as temporary gifts that point us to the ultimate gift, 
Don't make your wife your God. Don't make your husband your God. Don't make your children your God. They are horrible gods. And they crumble under your worship. Make Jesus your God. Because he is the ultimate gift. And seeing him face to face when everything is all made new, nothing will pale in comparison. Both married and single people should realize that their situations are not ultimate. Both marriage and singleness are temporary gifts. They're light and momentary gifts in the fulfillment of God's purpose. Which leads us to the other countercultural statement, which is the gifts, of mar- the gifts of marriage and singleness both have their advantage. So yes, marriage is a gift. Let's state the obvious, because I'm sure some of you are thinking this anyways. It was God who looked at man in the Garden of Eden and said, it is not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? He makes a helper for him. And that word helper is a very interesting word. We won't go deep into it, but it me- it's the same word that's often used for the Holy Spirit because it's talking about not someone who is a servant to you, but somebody who completes you, empowers you in a way that you can't do on your own. It's complementary to the man. So the man has certain strength and the woman has certain strength and they complement each other. But when they start switching gender roles, we have confusion. And we're not in the design that God designed us to be from the garden. That's why we call ourselves complementarians, because both genders have specific roles from God that go back to the garden, that when they come together, they complement each other. The first word used to describe, oh, sorry, and then, sorry, he takes a, a rib right out of Adam, right? He doesn't take a foot. He doesn't take anything like that. He takes something from equal siding, so they stand side by side. He takes a rib out of Adam, and then what does he do? He fashions woman out of it. So if you ever wonder why women are into fashion, it's in Genesis. It's in the Bible. You can't argue with it. I'm kidding. Yes, you can. That's horrible hermeneutics. Okay. (laughs) But the first word to describe this woman was ebzer kaniko, which is a Hebrew word. Basically, it means same but different. She was made in the image of God, so same, just just like David, just like Adam, but she was different from him. She was complementary to him. So through, though every person is an individual, there are general patterns that God has instilled into men and women that go back to how they're created. Statistically speaking, not even biblically speaking at this point, women are more nurturing and are better at creating a stable home environment than men are. If you're like me and you're a man, most of us, before marriage, we were good with a chair, a TV, a place to eat, and maybe a waterbed. Do they still have those? I don't know. But those are great. I love the waterbed. Right? We didn't need much. We didn't need anything fancy. Before marriage, I had a bookshelf, a bed, a place to read and eat. I didn't need anything else. I could fit everything in my car and drive it around. Now, I just need my SUV to get the pillows that are on our bed in and moved, okay? And don't even get me started on our toiletries. Who knew there could be so many different types of soap that serve so many different types of purposes, right? Like before, before I was married, I had one bar of soap, and I would clean everything with it. My hair, my teeth, the floor, you name it. We could use that one bar of soap and extend it forever. (laughs) Now, not every man is like that. But God made man and women complementary so that the two of them, when they come together, would be a more complete reflection of the image of God than one gender alone. And bringing these two complementary pairs together is a gift. Even more so, marriage is a gift because it teaches us experientially about the love of God. 
C.S. Lewis, he got married later in life, and her, his wife died very soon after they were married. It's, it's quite sad. But he, he compared his marriage to the ray of the sun. When the sun hits your face and you feel the warmth, so you turn your body to it, right? And you, and you look back up and you follow that ray to where it's emulating from. And he says marriage is the same way. It warms you in a way that you look back where the gift is emulated from, which is God. Marriage should be pointing you to God. I will tell you this. I was taught, uh, uh, marriage, sorry, and having children too, has taught me more about the gospel than anything else. It's taught me more about the kindness, the tenderness, the forgiveness, the security, the unconditional love of God. The doctrines that I studied and I've learned about in seminary, I've experienced them in marriage. So yes, marriage is a gift, but so is singleness. And you might say, well, how so? Well, Paul gives us some depictions here in uh, verse 33. Jump into near the end. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So uh, just, just a quick clarification. When you read worldly here, we're not talking about sinful things. Paul is talking about earthly concerns. Because a healthy marriage, you should know this, and if you don't, listen up. A healthy marriage takes a lot of time and a lot of work. It doesn't just come by osmosis. I put every marriage book under the sun under my book, under my pillow, and it did not go into my brain. Okay? You have to take and do the work. A healthy marriage takes work. Your wife, husbands, need your time. And wives, your husbands need your time as well. And your children need both of your time. As a married man, I am not able to just go hang out downtown and share the gospel every night to the wee hours of the morning like I used to all the time before I was married. I have to make sure that I'm home every once in a while, more than every once in a while. Like we just got to the age where Levi was playing soccer last year, now he's in play school and all these other things, and I have to be there to help drop him off, have to pick him up, get him to places, help put him to bed. So after work, I have to amp myself up in the car. Come on, wake up. The real work is about to start. I'm about to walk home and be the man of God that God has called me to be in my home. And any husband, any wife knows what I'm talking about. Like many of you, marriage and kids limit your time and your money. And yes, you can complain about that, but we're failing to see that they are divinely limited by God. It is a blessing from God that your time and your money is limited by your kids and your wife. Because God has given us, first and foremost, as men, to provide for our families. And please don't just hear that as financially. That means spiritually in your time as well. You need to be the conductor of worship in your home. Uh, Matthew Henry, Matthew Henry, the Puritan, he says that our homes should be mini churches. That means you men are the pastors. You are the conductors of worship in your home. Like many of you, marriage and kids limit those things, but they're divinely limited. And it's not just limiting for men, but women in verse 34, he says their interests are also divided. And, 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 uh, and the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Paul is saying the same thing to the women. 
You're going to be going busy, chasing after your kids, helping raise your kids. Women, you have one of the most important roles. You are the missionary to the lost tribe of your kids, okay? And you, they will see you praying for them and bringing them to the word and reminding them of the love and the affections of Christ. You're going to be divided from your family, from your husband, and if you're working full-time, because who can afford one salary in this day and age, right? You're going to be divided. And Paul's saying, that's not a sin. That's just reality. But this is where the gift of singleness shines bright. The single person has the ability to listen and follow the Holy Spirit with so much freedom. I was looking at stats from larger U.S. churches because there's not much on Canadian churches, unfortunately. But they're saying that the most dependable volunteers that they have are single people, especially single women. They will be at all the events. They will be helping out every chance they get. They'll be the ones that will drop everything and drive to pick up the missionary or whoever from the airport. The Southern Baptist Convention in the state says three out of four applicants who apply to go to the most remote areas of the world to reach unreached people with the gospel are single ladies. Three out of four. So it's no wonder why Paul... In verse 7 said, I wish that all people were as I am. Because could you just imagine the extra bandwidth that we have in the church to do mission, to preach the gospel, to see the local church thrive? Which leads us to the third statement, which is, what is the gift of singleness? And should I consider it before I consider getting married? That's the million-dollar question, right? That's what we all want to know. So how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Well, before I answer that, we, we need to correct some thinking on spiritual gifts. Many people have the wrong conception of spiritual gifts. They assume that a spiritual gift is some sort of God-given assignment that he stamps on your head for your whole life like a personality trait. But that's not true. Spiritual gifts don't work like that. And, and I'm going to show you more of that in, in chapter 12. But for now, a spiritual gift, a charisma, is a special empowerment that comes on you for a time, maybe a long time or a short time, for a spiritual assignment that God has placed in your life. So let's look at this in the context of singleness. All of us, for a time, were single, which means all of us, for a time, had the gift of singleness. And God gave us the gift and the spirit to empower us to do it well. You don't look within and try to figure out mystically like, yes, you have the gift of singleness. And you're like, oh, wow, this is so amazing. It doesn't work like that. Don't make it that complicated and weird. If you are single, guess what? You have the gift of singleness, at least for the moment. How do I know? Because you're single. (laughs) And God will empower you to do it well, no matter how long you remain single. And if you're married, guess what? You have the gift of marriage. How do I know? Because you're married. Even if you say, well, I married the wrong lady. I married the wrong man. Doesn't matter. You got the gift now. And God will give you the spiritual power to do it well. (laughs) But you may say, well, Aaron, what I'm really asking is, yes, I'm single now. I understand what you're saying. But is God planning to ever put an expiry date on that singleness? Is there marriage in my future? How can I tell? Well, Paul gives us a couple of little hints in verse 9. He says, oh, sorry, I forgot to change. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What is Paul saying? He says, if you pray about it, and if you desire, the desire to be married burns inside of you, it's okay to ask God for a spouse. 
Don't listen to that little old lady who says, oh, just be content. It will come in time. Like you were content at 18, right? Like, like, ju- like just pray about it. That's not showing God you're, you're, you're not being content. Trust him with your desires. Because maybe as, he, as you pray about it, he might answer your prayer by giving you the ability to control yourself without marriage. That might be a very real possibility. Or as many have stated that I've been reading about, that they, 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 they had a desire to be married, but God took that from them. Or the desire remained, many said, but God rose another desire in their life that eclipsed that desire of marriage. So it's still there, but they're focused on things like missions, the local church, and reaching the lost. Paul, who had the gift of singleness, he described himself and others like this. He says, but whoever is firmly established in heart, being under no necessity, and but having his desire under control and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So in verse 36, he says, if your passions are strong and they're making you act sinfully, then you should marry. But in verse 37, he says, whoever is firmly established under no necessity and having their desires under control will do well. So does that sound like you? Are you firmly established? Are you under no necessity? Do you have your desires under control? If so, you might can say, hey, I have the gift of singleness. Maybe for a time. Maybe it ends. And you should take advantage of your singleness. So many of us waste our single years. And the betrothed part in verse 37 might be a little bit confusing. There's two different ways to really understand it. We simply don't know, but it doesn't change the the main idea. Paul could be addressing men there who were betrothed, which means engaged. It was the language back then. And they got convinced of singleness and said, nope, not getting married. Or he could be talking to fathers who saying, no, 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 my daughters are not getting married until they're 65, okay, when I'm long gone. Anyways, what he's saying is that it is good either you're married or unmarried, but he shows favoritism to singleness. He leans towards singleness, but he does flip-flop back and forth. 36, right, he says, if you burn with passion, you should marry. And then in 39, he says, is a wife bound to her husband as long as he lives? But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whoever she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. (laughs) I love that. If I could put Paul's words in some modern words here, he would just be saying, hey, don't make it so hard. Pray about it. Let God lead you through your desires and trust him where he leads you. And he will gift you and empower you wherever that is, if that's singleness or if that's marriage. Which leads us to the fourth statement. These last will be very quick, I promise. When you consider marriage, you, you should also consider, is it the right time? Is it the right time for marriage? Verse 26 is really interesting. He goes, I I think that in view of this present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Where is it? Oh, you must be unclicked off the PowerPoint. He goes on to say, if you're married, then stay married. If you're single, then remain single. And at first, it sounds like Paul is telling single people, don't ever seek to get married. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says, in view of the present distress remain as you are. You got to remember that Paul's writing in a particular era of history where persecution of Christians was at a fever pitch. It was at an all-time high and it was going to get worse. And he's saying, hey, it's hard enough to suffer when you're, ma- or when you're unmarried, but if you have wives and children who are going to be snatched from you and killed in front of you, it gets a little harder. So he's saying maybe it's not the best time to do it. 
But we don't live in a persecuted time right now. We have some persecution, but it's nothing compared to what's going on right there in the, uh, in the Western world. And, and, but so I believe if Paul was writing today, he maybe would encourage marriage a little bit more. I can't say for sure. But what this means for you, we can take Paul's words and say maybe there are situations or eras in our lives where it is more advantageous for us to wait. For example, in a season when you're trying to finish your education or getting established in your career or maybe God has called you to focus on mission or the local church or maybe, here's a big one, you need to heal from something before you get married. During those seasons when it's wise to wait, you can trust God that he will empower you to wait well. And this is one of the reasons why why I encourage you to be in the local church and invested in the local church because when you have the blinders on and you can't see if it's the right time or not, your brothers and sisters can help you see that. Which leads me to five, which is when it's time, don't wait. Get moving, okay? Again, verse 36 says, if passions are strong, if remaining single is going to cause you to sin sexually with your partner, Paul says, marry, get it done. It's not a sin. And in verse 37, he says, whatever you do, though, make sure you're firmly established in your heart. So if dating, if dating's good. I think many parents let their kids start dating way too young. You can fight me about that later, but I think it's totally wrong. But, but when you're dating, that actually leads you to marriage, because that's what it should do. Do more than just magical evenings of movies and dinners and fun, because guess what? That's going to die out real quick. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, <laughs> but go do, go do normal, fun, normal mundane things, like go grocery shop together. Get stuck in traffic jams together. Let your friends meet their friends, and let your parents meet them, and their parents meet you. Take your time in the dating season. But when you know that this is the one you're going to marry and you propose, you move quick. Don't drag out that engagement. Don't keep a ring on her finger with an elusive promise of marriage somewhere far down the road. Marry her. Don't. Don't string people along. Be firmly established, Paul says. And guys, if it's not time to get married, you know you're still too immature, then don't do it. Don't do it. Get on with your singleness and what God is doing in your singleness and let God do what he is doing in that girl's singleness as well. Dating is the road that leads to marriage. So if you're not ready for that destination, get off the road and just serve God in your singleness. Now, guys, lest you misunderstand me, I'm not saying the first date you drop a ring, okay? There is a fine line between being firmly established and creepy, okay? And if you get a restraining order, I am denying the sermon, okay? So number six. <laughs> reject the, the perfect person myth. The perfect person myth is if I could just find the right person, then I'll finally be happy. And if you're married right now and you're unhappy, you're thinking, oh, I missed the right person. If I could just find that right person, my marriage would finally be good. But here's the truth. Romance and marriage will never satisfy the deepest needs of your soul. Again, they make horrible gods. Let me in let me let you in on a little secret, and I have Bailey's permission to say this before any of you run and tell on me. You always marry the wrong person. You always marry the wrong person because you always marry a sinner. Your husband, your wife, they were so bad that Jesus had to die for them. And if Jesus had to take his blood to fix them up, don't you think they're going to cause a little bit of irritation in your life every once in a while? You always marry the wrong person. We always marry sinners, and that's the first thing you need to realize getting into marriage. Your husband, your wife's going to let you down sometime. They're going to hurt you at some point. 
And you need to go into that knowing that's going to happen. But even from a psychological uh, perspective, they say, uh, psychiatrists say that over the lifetime of a monogamous marriage, one person, we are married to five different people. Because we change. The people who say, oh, they're just not the same person who they were when we married. Good. Do you still want to be married to a 22-year-old bozo? Like, really? Like, we're supposed to change. The person, the perfect person myth is that happiness depends on finding the perfect person. And that leads to terrible captivity. And you're terrified because you think you're never going to find the right person. And if you're a marriage and you believe that, you think every time it gets hard, oh, I miss my soulmate. Maybe she's not the right one. Maybe he's not the right one. Reject the perfect person myth. And now the last one, very quickly, never settle. Verse 39 says, a wife uh, is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if, he, if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Here's what I want you to focus on. Only in the Lord. If you get married, be it the first time or after, God forbid, you lose your spouse, it should only be done in the Lord. So let me translate that. You should not and you cannot marry a non-Christian, which also means you shouldn't date one either. We do not believe in flirt to convert, okay? We don't believe in missionary dating where you're going to save people through romantic relationships. (laughs) Who you marry, hear this is the biggest influence on not only your kids, but also you. And do you really want that to be a non-believer? And please don't hear me wrong. If you got saved after you're married and your husband and your wife are still not a believer, I'm not saying you divorce them. We're actually going to talk about this. You have a special assignment from God to be praying and serving and winning them to the Lord. It's a beautiful thing, but it's a hard road to be on. So let me conclude by bringing it all back around as we close. Marriage and singleness are gifts, temporary gifts for the fulfillment of God's purposes. And if you're looking for something to satisfy the deep needs of your soul, you're not going to find it in marriage. And you're not, if you're married, you're not going to find it in a new marriage. You're going to find it in Jesus and Jesus' love for you. The best thing, if your marriage is hard right now, the best thing you can do is commit to being a godly man or woman. Commit your ways to the Lord. Be praying for your wife. Be praying for your husband. Serve them as Christ served the church. Not saying all your problems will disappear, but it puts you on a firm, good foundation to work through the hard things no matter what transpires. And maybe you counter that as a single and you say, well, I don't want to be alone right now. I'm just so tired of being alone. I don't like sitting in my home and and missing out. And I would just say, you're not supposed to be alone. That's why you feel like that. God created you for relationship. God created you for companionship. And the ultimate place you find that is in the church. Remember Piper's quote. He says, marriage is temporary, and it points us to Christ. It points us to that relationship, Christ in the church. And lastly, for those of my brothers and sisters who might be dealing with and struggling with same-sex attractions, know this, that you can live a full and meaningful life as a single. Now, I know there's statistically speaking, there are men and women who have, have, uh, have, have felt an attraction, got married, and God removed that same-sex attraction from them. But others haven't but they still live a meaningful, full life as a single because it's unto the Lord and it's temporary. If I could suggest one book to you or two on that subject, I don't normally do this, but there's a book by a man named Sam Albury. He is a same-sex attractive pastor who has committed his life to celibacy, to honor the Lord with his body. He wrote the book, Is God Anti-Gay? And he wrote a book on seven myths of singleness. Pick them up. 
if you're single or not, if you have same-sex attractions or not, because it's timely, timely messages for our church. So we have the responsibility, church, to, to be for our singles, to invite them into our families. First of all, we need to see them as treasures that Paul saw them as, not as something that we need to fix up, not as a project we need to fix. But we need to be aware that their calling has particular challenges to it. So invite them into your family to experience relationship there. Invite them into key moments in your life, not to just come over and babysit your kids. That's so degrading when that's the only interaction you have to just babysit your kids or move a piece of furniture. Have them over for Thanksgiving. Bring them in on Christmas Eve or other special events. Make them part of your family. Now, single people, hear me on that. You have to be willing to go. I know it's easy to stay in your apartment, in your house, in whatever you do, in your work, but go. Commune. Be a part of these families. This is a call to us as a church body. Let's be more than just individuals who breathe the same air once a week, but let's be people who are looking forward to eternity because we're all going to be there together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the thing that completes us. Father, I don't complete my wife, nor does she complete me. We do complement each other, but Lord, you are our God. And Father, you complete us. You are where we find our source of satisfaction. Oh, Lord, I pray that all of us here, we would stop running to other wells, stop digging other cisterns that don't hold water, as your Bible says, because they're broken. But, Lord, you are the living water, and whoever drinks of your water, oh, Lord, will never thirst again. Father, may we find satisfaction in you and who you are and what you have accomplished for us and who you have called us to be. Father, would you protect our singles, and Lord, would you use them to further your kingdom in amazing ways that we could never even imagine. Father, would you bring them deeper into our family relationships. Father, would they become one of us and, and be part of individual families, that they would be auntie and uncles to kids all around our church, oh Lord. And Father, for our marriages, God, protect our marriages. They're under siege, oh Lord. Father, would you protect the thing that you have brought together that, that points our eyes to you. Fight for our marriages, O oh Lord, and give us the strength to fight for them as well. In Jesus' name, amen.